Imogen, tell the people about your dinner last night, please. Something terrible happened. <laughs> Awful. It's never happened to me before in my life. Set the scene for us. I'm making a prawn fatouche. A prawn fatouche. Delicious. Bless you. Making a prawn fatouche. Uh, it is Lebanese. Lovely Lebanese dish. Mm-hmm. If you've not had delightful, mm-hmm. uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend. I, I've had leftover tortillas from the tacos I made earlier in the week. Mm-hmm. And I've air fried them so they're nice and crispy. Like tortilla chips mm. to stick in my fatouche. Uh, lo and behold, she's run out of sumac. Right. So the, the, a key point here is that the key ingredient in a prawn fatouche is not prawns like you might it's, think. It's sumac. It's sumac. And I've run out of a spice. <laughs> when does that ever happen? I love this. So you don't run out of spices. This is an unfamiliar experience for you. You don't run out of spices. I don't think anyone runs out of spices. <laughs> Wait, I run out of spices. How do you run out of spices? Producer Philippa runs out of spices. How do you run out of spices? Because it's not like I'm checking the levels of the sumac. If I'm making a prawn for twos, usually I'll be like, oh, I need to buy more sumac. Or if I'm making a curry, I'll buy cumin, even though I've got tons and tons and tons of it in the drawer. I don't need to buy any more spices, but I'm constantly refilling my spice drawer. I run out of some spices, but not others. I'm pretty sure that the turmeric in my um, cupboard has been there since 1998. Never runs out. But hey, it's a tragedy. Um, but you ended up making the prawn fatouche and it was delicious even though it didn't have any sumac? No comment. Right. Turns out you need sumac. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to it. Kia ora, this is Newsable, I'm Emil. And I'm Imogen and this is what's worth talking about. The Warriors are two steps from immortality. So what can other sporting codes learn from the incredible relationship the team's cultivated with its fans? We also look at a new twist in one of the most horrifying court cases in the history of the United Kingdom. We chat to the Welsh political journalist who was the victim of a bizarre disinformation campaign. And a vigilante entrepreneur sticking it to the man. The parking man in the US city of Atlanta. We've got all that coming up in a moment here on Newsable. Newsable takes time and resources to produce. Please support our mahi and visit stuff.co.nz slash support. It was do or die for the Warriors on Saturday night. Win or go home? And win they did. An amazing style, mopping up the Knights at Mount Smart Stadium, 40 points to 10. They'll now play the Broncos in Brisbane next weekend for a spot in the NRL Grand Final. That's a competition, of course, they've never won in their history, he says, with a pained note in his voice. Uh, and it's definitely fair to say that if they can pull it out of the bag, they will have their 14th man to thank. The Warriors fans who have pulled them through tough matches on innumerable occasions throughout this season. So how have they managed to connect with their fans on such an incredible primal level? Justin Nelson is Sky Sports Head of Commercial and Fandom. He's worked in a bunch of sports from basketball to motorsport to AFL and he joins us now. Kia ora. Uh, Kia ora. Thank you very much for having me and it's a great topic. I'm glad people are talking about it. Justin, there's nothing quite like watching a sports team under incredible pressure rise to the occasion, is there? Oh, absolutely not. It's our emotive outlet. It's our source of leisure time. It's our source of entertainment. And it's our source of emotional roller coaster time as well. And, and certainly once you're involved in it and you really embrace it, 
uh, it's a lot of fun. You, you sent out an interesting tweet after the match. Um, you got involved in a bit of discourse about this, about the Warriors' support and how they're showing every other team and sort of every other code what tribal support is all about. I think those were your words, which is a really interesting thought. I want to. Can you expand a bit on that? What do you, What did you mean by that? <laughs> Well, I'm a born and bred Melbourneian, and we're born into sport. It's it is a religion, especially being AFL territory, Aussie rules. We're quite often born into a team, and you know I can only liken that to my own children. If they were Sydney Swans supporters growing up, they could stay inside the house. If they weren't Sydney Swans supporters, they needed to sleep outside. I say that in jest, of course, but that's the only way. That, that's the way that we are brought up. But what it does is it teaches us to enjoy sport from the lens of being a fan and it converts us into being tribal fans. And in my five years here in New Zealand, I've yet to come across tribal fandom. I think there's a lot of passive um, fandom that exists out there. But what the Warriors have done, and certainly from what I have seen this year in particular, is tribal fandom. And it's really great to see because it's enjoyable, it's fun. How have they done this? Can you think about the moment where something clicked? Because to me, I can't pinpoint the moment, but it was like all of a sudden, whoa, Mm. game changer, level up in terms of fans. When there's a level of success, um, it breeds success. Mm. uh, And you see that come out in, in the fans. But I think the thing that the Warriors do really, really well, and it's an important message for all sports out there because every sport can build tribal fandom. It's about making sure your fans are included, making sure that they are connected and engaged, but most importantly, making sure that your fans know and understand that they are the primary reason for you doing what you do. And primary means number one. The fans are the most important people. Players and coaches, they come and go. But if you bring a fan in, if you include them uh, and you make them feel valued, chances are you'll have them for life. Justin, just before we let you go, give us enough the wires, would you? <laughs> I don't think I've ever said it publicly, but gee, it was enjoyable to watch the, the colour and uh, the signs uh, and just the sheer elation on the faces of people. I'm very, very happy uh, to become a tribal fan and say, up the waz. Here we go. There it is. <laughs> Glorious. These are the scoop on newsable. <laughs> Justin Nelson, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate it. So after my tale of running out of sumac, a.k.a. a spice, please get in touch on Instagram so that we can scientifically find out if this is a one-off or is this something that other people have fallen victim to. Have you also run out of a spice and realised why cooking? Find us on Instagram, Newsable NZ. We're turning to a case now, a court case, that we thought had reached its really sad and horrifying conclusion. It is that of Lucy Letby, the former British nurse jailed for the murder of babies and the attempted murder of a similar number of newborns. Now, though, in a major turn of events, just weeks after being sentenced to a whole life order, which means she'll never be released from prison, the 33-year-old Letby has applied to appeal her conviction. The details of this case are really, really distressing, so do be careful about whether you listen to this or not. But, yeah, remind us about how we got here in the first place. So... 
Last month, a jury found Lucy Letby guilty of murdering seven babies and trying to kill six more over a 13-month time period between 2015 and 2016 at a neonatal unit in a northern English hospital. That trial lasted 10 months, and the conviction made Letby Britain's worst serial child killer in modern history. Now, throughout all of this, Letby has denied all the offences, all the charges, and in fact wasn't even in court on her sentencing date. She refused to leave the court cells. And actually, side note there, it was that that's resulted in plans to give judges new powers to force criminals to attend their sentencing. So she is is given the sentence, a whole life Mm -hmm. order, but what is happening now? So Letby has applied to appeal, which according to my research and reports from British media is something that anyone convicted of a crime in the UK can do within 28 days of their conviction. So a judge will now have to decide whether or not to grant her the permission to challenge the conviction. And there's no hearing needed for that. A singular judge can make that call on their own. If that judge doesn't give her permission to appeal, she can then push for a hearing before a handful of judges to try and get that permission once again. So it's not as if we're going to see this happen in a matter of days, but that process will now start. Right, okay. And there is still separately the possibility that further trials are to come on other charges, yeah? Yeah, so at the start of this recent court case, Letby was accused of killing seven babies and injuring 10 others and there were 22 charges in total. So while she was found guilty of murdering the seven infants, she was only found guilty of attempting to murder six of those 10 other cases. So a hearing next week will decide whether or not the Crown intends to push for a fresh trial in relation to those other murder charges after the jury failed to reach a verdict on them. So either way, we were going to see Lucy Letby back in the headlines. Obviously, it's... You can imagine a blow to the families. Hey, we're still going to talk about a bizarre disinformation campaign involving a political journalist in Wales' first minister. But while we've got you here, if you like what you're hearing, chuck us a like and a follow on your favourite podcast platform. It helps us reach a wider audience and it will make all your wildest dreams come true. All of them? Most of them. Wow. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You'll also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts. We're taking you now to Cardiff, Wales, where a journalist has been battling a myth about his heritage. Yeah, Will Hayward is the Welsh Affairs Editor for Wales Online, and he's recently been forced to publicly debunk claims that he is the nephew of one of the country's most senior politicians, First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford. Will Hayward joins us now to talk us through this wild tale of misinformation. Kia ora, welcome to Newsable. 
Thanks for having me. Bottled up. Oh, nice. First up, Will, can you quickly explain to our audience what or who the first minister of Wales is? Yeah. So essentially the first minister is like the prime minister. So you've got the prime minister of the UK, um, Rishi Sunak, um, and then we've got devolution uh, in the UK. So Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland have their own powers and things like health and education in Wales are run by the Welsh government, which is headed by the first minister, which is Mark Drakeford. And so mindful of that, Will, even with Wales being a relatively small population wise, it would be a pretty serious conflict of interest if the first minister of Wales was your uncle, given your job, it's fair to say. Yeah, absolutely. I'm probably one of the most prominent journalists in Wales and a big part of my job is interviewing and scrutinising the decisions by the First Minister. Um, so if I was to also be uh, nipping to his for Sunday lunch, that would probably be uh, quite problematic. <laughs> uh, to the best of your knowledge, where did these rumours start that you were his nephew and when and how were you first made aware of them? So it was peak COVID 2020. It was very contentious time and um, there was a lot of uh, misinformation going around those people were quite scared it was a weekend and I got a call from my editor saying this is quite a weird one but uh, I need to ask you a question um, are you Mark Drakeford's nephew um, <laughs> now I'm, I'm from England um, Mark Drakeford is from West Wales he's a first language Welsh speaker we we don't look alike I like to think no offense to him so and I, I laughed for a bit and I said to my editor no I, I'm not related to Mark Drakeford and um, he said oh we've just had a, this woman call up saying that he is your uncle so I said, no, he's not. And so my editor went back to her and said, no, Mark Drakeford, he's not Will's uncle. I just thought nothing of it. Um, for it's just, um, you, get, you get some interesting characters in journalism, don't you? So didn't think anything of it. And then um, about six months later, I, I just wanted to check something about Drakeford. Um, so like all um, uh, lazy journalists, I looked on Wikipedia. And in personal life, I saw that he was in fact the uncle of Welsh journalist Will Hayward. That was when I kind of started to question my sanity and thought, is he actually my uncle? Is it? What's happening? If Wikipedia tells me. Because of the nature of some of the journalism I do, I do a lot of our longer form investigations. I debunk myths and misinformation as well as part of my job. And it's made me a very uh, small but very passionate group of people who hate me. Um, And so I, I think they kind of latched onto this and then... There was a YouTube channel about how someone had uncovered it. And it got to the point where I didn't give it any oxygen to start with because I had no idea how I would prove he wasn't my uncle. Unless yeah. we did like a kind of TV style DNA test. Yeah. So I, I just ignored it. But then it got to the point where I was like, well, this is actually getting quite damaging. So I thought I've got to say something because the fact I hadn't said anything looked a bit, well, to the people, they thought it was very suspicious. So I wrote a piece basically about how I'm not related to this man. Well, do you think of this as being more sort of amusing or more sinister? Um, I think it's possible for it to be both. Um, mm. I think it's possible for something to be hilarious, but also quite damaging. I think it's not going to affect me particularly negatively. I think most right-thinking people after a bit realise that this is rubbish. I like to think that I probably know who I'm related to better than people who don't know me. I was arguing with a guy who didn't know me, who'd never met me, that I was wrong about who I was related to. And mm. he couldn't explain how he knew. But because that lie, that lie has taken root, every denial is a confirmation. Mm. Yeah. When, you've, when you are convinced you're the cleverest person in the room um, and everyone else on your little chat room is going, yeah, 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 you're right, you're, you're onto something here. It's, it's quite hard to untangle those weeds. Will Hayward, thank you so much for joining us. And am I going to pronounce this right? Hulva. Hulva. Did I just, oh, I thought I just said goodbye. Maybe oh. I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you, yeah, you, you nailed it. Nailed it. Okay, no, 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 no. <laughs> Tell me how to say it. 
Uh, we, we could we could we could go for a, a Diochenbauer, which is a thank you very much. Um, oh, I don't think we're doing this. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, or as most people in Wales would say, um, goodbye. <laughs> we love a vigilante here on Usable. Yes, we do. Batman is our favourite superhero by far. Well, Batman was our favourite superhero mm-hmm. until we found out about the Boot Girls. Emil, tell him about the Boot Girls. The Boot Girls. Okay. <laughs> so the Boot Girls are from Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, in the USA. Atlanta, of course, most famous as the birthplace of Martin Luther King and Coca-Cola. But Atlanta, Imogen, Atlanta has a problem. And what's the problem? The problem is parking. Mm-hmm. Atlanta has lots of people who park their cars illegally, over 100,000 every year. And they deal with this problem through the use of a thing called a boot. And by boots, we mean the metal things that parking wardens attach to the wheel of your car, which essentially mean it's immobilised. I've never actually seen it happen. They're very inconvenient in car boots. You know, you have to call the security company and you pay them lots of money. Uh, in Atlanta, it's 75 bucks a day is the going rate. And then the company comes along and they put the key in and they take the boot off and boom, you're good to go. You're just really grumpy at all the money that you had to give. But not anymore because the boot girls have procured one of the master keys for car boots. Somehow, they've acquired this great power. With that great power comes great responsibility um, following that superhero theme and their responsibility. They feel responsibility to the drivers of Atlanta. So if your car gets booted in Atlanta, you can call on the boot girls. They have names. One's called Boot Baby. The other's mm-hmm. called Boot Shasty. And they'll roll up surreptitiously. They'll be wearing full balaclava <laughs> and they will unlock the boot on your car. The boot being the, the thing on your the wheel. The thing on the yeah. thingy, not the boot of your uh-huh, car. Yeah. Oh, it's very confusing. Uh, for the low, low price of just 50 American dollars. And you might be thinking to yourself, I'm not sure the city of Atlanta is happy about this. And you would be right if, uh, if that was what you were thinking. The police are warning that this is a crime. But the boot babies are belligerent. They insist the practice of booting is itself morally indefensible. And they're going to keep on keeping on. Anyway, on that note, that's Newsable for today, the greatest podcast of them all. I'm Imogen Wells. And I'm Emil Donovan. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you again tomorrow. Was this episode of Newsable usable? Then back NZ News by making a financial contribution at stuff.co.nz slash support. I think you're conflating a whole bunch of issues. You don't want to be held to account well, no, on what, rising child no, abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics. I, I promised I wouldn't have a tattoo of that gotcha journalism. Hang into the National Party's no, attack line no, there. No, that, I think Chris, it would be a resignation offence if I didn't deliver tax reduction. Yeah, yeah I'm not worried about it at all. Nothing if in there. That sits with you perfectly fine. That's what, we're, that's what we're focused on. Whatever happens in politics, the weird, the wonderful, the important, the thought-provoking, we got you. Listen to Tova wherever you get your podcasts.